0: Welcome to the Metabolic Health Podcast, the show which helps listeners drop fat, increase muscle mass, and most importantly, prevent or even reverse lifestyle-driven diseases. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Andrew Appleton, as we dive into the root of obesity, diabetes, neurological disorders, and even many cancers. Yes, these are all preventable diseases driven by various lifestyle choices that you can do something about today. Our podcast aims to take complex health topics and turn them into easily digestible information with a practical viewpoint so you can take meaningful actions right now. So join us as we do our part to reestablish the core value of health back to our community. In part two of the CMB Health intro series, Andrew and I finish up the sleep pillar and get into the diet pillar. So let's not waste any more time and get right into it. So it sounds fairly clear that you have somewhat of an evolutionary lens of which you look through your profession in these problems and things you see, which is something I've always tried to do, and I find that it can make these sorts of issues a lot more clear when you have something like that to to reference right. um, you know i assume it's also helpful for someone like you in medicine where you know the wealth of information the wealth of studies the quality of studies the stuff that you're going through and looking at every single day can probably be a little bit overwhelming and perhaps it's helpful to always be able to cross-reference what you do in medicine with some sort of philosophy that maybe runs a little bit deeper than that as well. Is that something that is or is becoming more common in medicine as well using an evolutionary lens or is this something that's a little bit more unique to you? Oh, yeah, I I doubt it. I I don't think
1: most people are are drawing it back to that. Um, I mean, certainly we're all very well aware that humans are, are a product of of evolution. Um and it, it's, it's probably more common to look at it in those terms at the basic science level. So I think our, our scientists are, are really good at doing that and coming up with uh, evolution-based uh, theories and, and hypotheses that are that are testable for, you know why certain physiological pathways are developed, for example. So I think we, we have a lot to learn there. In the, in the clinical lens, I mean, it, it's probably not super relevant most of the time. Um, I just bring it up in the context of helping people to try to understand how the way that we live now is not really, uh, what we were naturally designed, or it was not the environment we we were designed for., um, you know, will evolution continue to occur? And you know, 10,000 years from now we'll look back and go, there was a lot of evolutionary pressure on us now with how society is, and that humans at that time will look, uh, totally different than we do now that's possible you know if the sun doesn't explode by then but <laughs> who knows <laughs> right uh, or if we live on mars whatever um, so it, they're they're all interesting things but i i just you know kind of just bring it up a, as an example of you know that we're, what we're exposed to now is not really natural it's just sort of a, a product of you know humans are smart we we are technological beings that's wonderful um, but there's a lot of potential downsides to
0: where we have taken that. Yeah, the, well the way that I look at it, which I is probably equally helpful and unhelpful, might be helpful psychologically for people to have some forgiveness of the current state they're in rather than being yeah. self-blaming. Right. Um but unhelpful in the sense that it can also sound it can also make things seem a little bit nihilistic uh because yeah. when I think about the evolutionary lens it is no surprise that 70 percent of our population is overweight right and every year people are coming more and more obese because if you look at it that way we are driven to consume to over consume to conserve energy we're effective fat stores everything that got us here is now hurting us in a time of abundance so people people make their food and exercise choices about their character. I do this because I am this. I do that because I am that, right? And they're very self-blaming and it becomes a very negative cycle. When in reality, someone being fit is surprising. Someone being fit is abnormal because you have to constantly go against the grain and work against your instincts in order to make choices that lead To a healthier body so when you i assume you there's some amount of agreement there that human beings are psychologically driven to do a lot of things that are now unhealthy for us when that is a part of the state of of modern human beings how do you think about that and how do you deal with that as a professional knowing that i can give all the advice in the world but does it really change the, the strong underlying driving forces that push someone to overeat and eat hyper palatable foods and sit on the couch and be distracted with TV and all these things that are, they're not unnatural. They're just happening in a very unnatural environment. Right. Yeah. So this, to me, this comes back to what's
1: the philosophy that you use to, to look at. So I think of you know, what's my role as a physician trying to help people with these problems. Uh, you mentioned nihilism. So like the nihilistic view would be, you know, e- humans evolved to be exactly what we are right now. And we uh, created the society, all the technology, all of the the food industry products and everything. And you know that's just the way it is. And yeah, it's adversely affecting a huge part of the population. But, you know, so be it. That's their choice. And Whatever. It is what it is. Right. That's not a great way of going about it. (laughs) No. (laughs) So uh, the philosophy that, that I apply to, you know, I ask myself as a physician, what am I actually trying to achieve for people? And it's kind of a balance of, on the one hand, I truly believe that an individual's health and well-being is primarily their own responsibility. However understanding that we also need to know that there's imperfect information out there not everybody has the same level of understanding or education about how to optimize their health and well-being and so that's where the experts come in that's where physicians can help you understand that and help you as you take responsibility for your own health and well-being so the the victim mindset is really harmful to people, but I see it very, very frequently, and and I openly talk to people about that. I say, you know, wh- whose responsibility is this? You know, who is it? Someone else's fault that this outcome occurred for you? Well, yeah, there's a lot of factors at play, and certainly when you talk about uh, certain populations, uh, uh, lower socioeconomic status. There is a lot of systemic stuff going on that, you know, people never really had a fair shake or a fair opportunity to uh, lead the healthiest possible life. And so we need to address that at a systemic level. Uh, But for the individual who, you know, may have otherwise had the means and the ability to make the choices to take responsibility for those things, then, yeah, we do have to pay attention to the fact that, you know, there's a lot of victimhood and and blaming and excuses that can be made so how do we help somebody see that and understand that so that ultimately I I just want to help you take your health where you want it to go and I want to give you the opportunity to live the kind of good life that you want to have with good rich experiences of living. I don't have no
0: idea if that answers your question. (laughs) Well, I don't even know what the question was. I'm going to assume that you're uh, not—you don't follow the Sam Harris school of thought in free will, then, because this is something that I think about all the time: is if someone is in a state where they're, you know, 300 pounds when their ideal body weight is 150, is it really a matter of their choice when you get to when you get really down to it? is a person really just choosing over and over again to destroy themselves maybe in in some cases it is but i have to believe that i'm luck. there's an element of luck to me being as fit as i am right right and yep. as far as the external appearance of being fit it certainly doesn't mean that i'm the healthiest person in the world but when i look at someone who's 300 pounds i have to believe that there's an element of my life that was not my choosing that got me here and the same is true for them and maybe that's an unhelpful thing to even consider (laughs) in your (laughs) profession because what are you really going to do about that you know i don't spend a lot of
1: time talking about free will with my (laughs) patients uh although i do i do think it's really interesting and uh i i find sam harris's argument uh very compelling actually and the, the, the distinction that I would draw is there's a difference between free will and autonomy. Uh, so the free will that that Sam talks about is mainly, you know, we don't control the thoughts that come into our consciousness. So although when when we do have a thought in consciousness, we then have the choice and we have the autonomy, whether or not we want to follow through on that or challenge it inside of our own self narrative. Um, but we have no idea what thoughts are going to be served up to us on the platter of consciousness. And so that that's where the trick comes in. And to, to me, it's about conditioning. So the, the human condition, we are products of the experiences that we've had in the past. So the thoughts that we've had, the feelings and the emotions attached to those thoughts become our lived experience. And then that feeds directly back into this conditioning loop, and if we don't add an accountability step within that, then we can just operate on autopilot. And so we, we almost are, are tricked to believe that I have no choice at all because I'm just I'm just acting, you know, based on how I always did, and I just I see no other option. Well, there is, but it starts with awareness. And it starts with examining that uh, internal narrative and going, well, wait a minute, what's going through my brain right now, you know, is that actually true? How do I know that that's true? Is there some other way to look at this? But that takes work. (laughs) It takes insight. It takes time. Um, And none of us are taught how to do this in, you know, definitely not in in the public school system. you know, our our parents' generation uh, you know, probably weren't that great at this, and so we didn't necessarily learn it. I think it's becoming a little bit more uh, okay to talk about this sort of thing now. Um, but again, I don't know if that answers any part of your question. But, I mean, I, I think it is, it's really important Um, to think about how we think when it comes to making these choices because there is the potential for blaming and shaming people and when you see that you know the overweight unhealthy person you go ah well you just made a bunch of poor choices and you know what maybe they didn't actually understand that they were making choices that doesn't mean that they couldn't have but just the way that they were conditioned led to this specific outcome but that doesn't mean that that's the way it has to be you know there is potentially the room for for intervention within that to get somebody to improve their self-insight and that can be the most effective starting place rather than just now i'm going to treat you with medication and go on to the next patient because that's you know the most uh economically viable
0: uh, practice so to summarize mm-hmm. your point of view and you can tell me if this is correct or not at the most basic level while a fit person Uh, And an unfit person or someone of a healthy weight versus someone from a very unhealthy weight, the person from a very unhealthy weight might have 10x the amount of thoughts about food every day as the person who is of a healthy weight. So they have a greater burden of having to say no or having to change their thoughts. but at the end of the day once that thought comes up you believe that there's room to manage that thought differently where you get a different result and this is a skill that you build the more that you rather than just you get the thought you go do the thing so you think about food and then you eat the food if you can create a greater buffer between the thought and the action you can over time actually create control and create better choices and you can move yourself in the right direction, even though it might be way more work for you to do that than someone who maybe has it a little bit easier in that. Yeah.
1: So let's look at an example. Um, So I have uh, an obese uh, woman in my practice who I mean, I I think she clearly she has food addiction, uh, which is absolutely a real thing. And so when you have addiction, you you're over, you're consumed uh, by thoughts at times about how, how can I go out of my way to achieve this thing that I'm addicted to? And so one of the, one of the things that she would do is she's a shift worker after busy shift, you know, there was no meal planning ahead. So she would just hit a fast food restaurant, grab something to eat on the way home. So we talked about that and go, okay, so, you know, This is not the best choice. Absolutely. I know it. But when I'm tired, it's after work. I just want to get home as quickly as possible. I know I need to eat something. I'm thinking about how delicious that, you know, Big Mac is whatever. Um, then there she goes. She's, she's there. Um, so, okay. What can we do differently? So a, you recognize the thought, but we know that, um, self-control willpower is not a great sustainable solution in most cases but you can change behavior so you could take a different route home that doesn't take you past a fast food restaurant for example Uh, you can plan ahead and go i know that this is going to happen at the end of my shift so i'm going to pack a healthy meal instead that's sitting there in the car ready for me when I get in on the way home. So I've got something to eat instead. So I mean, there, there are ways that you can do this. And if you do that long enough, you will recondition yourself uh, to not continue to have that reinforcing experience. So I think if you look at it in terms of, of that and, and how do you how do you challenge that cycle of experience and conditioning,
0: then you can make a lot of headway. So is there 2 is there two is there two levels of preparation there then? So you have to prepare through thinking, right? So you're yeah. you're preparing your mind of the thing, you know, that's a problem and might happen and you need to bring it to the surface right. and not, you know, just just shove it down until it's too late. And then once that thought is brought up of, oh, I know that after work today, I'm going to go here, I'm going to do this thing. Then there has to be a preparatory action of whether it's you drive a different route or you, you think about it far enough ahead of time that you can bring something to work that doesn't, you know, at, at the very least, gives a clear excuse of of not going to that place that is problematic. There's a thought preparation and then there's an actual tangible, physical preparation that has to be followed up with that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh,
1: you can't make somebody change who doesn't want to change. Right. That's that is a fool's errand.
0: Well, this was going to be yeah. the next the next path here. Not <laughs> not really. Not quite ready to move on to food or exercise or whatever's going to come next. But <laughs> you you're going to see a lot of people who have gotten to a very very unhealthy place uh, through years and years of a lot of very unhealthy compounding actions but you must see some success stories uh, and some promise in the people who come through your door, even though they're probably worse off than most people are going to see. Yep. So aside from the obvious of a terrible diagnosis that might trigger somebody to start making a change out of that deep, deep fear of, of dying or going through that, do you see other X factors because there's got to be one, right? If, if someone's been doing the same thing their whole life and they know it's a problem and they know where it's leading and then they end up in front of you, what other X factors come up where it's the thing that leads to the person actually making the long-term change that turns their health around? Yeah,
1: I, I think that's, that's talking to people about what's important to them and what their actual goals might be. Um, and then... helping to reveal to them whether or not their current actions and strategies are in alignment with those goals because we're good at saying what we want but then if you look at what we're actually doing it often is completely in the opposite direction so that small intervention can be helpful and then there's a lot to be said for having a good support system this is it's starting to sound like a lot like <laughs> AA or something. Um, but I mean, this this is crucial, especially when it comes to, to nutrition. For example, if you live with people, then everyone kind of needs to be on the same page because it's too much work to prepare different things for everybody in the household. Um, you know, I often I'll, I'll have you know, a, a man of a certain vintage who comes through the clinic and you go, well, let's talk about your nutrition. What do you eat? I don't know. Whatever my wife makes me. You know, like, oh, okay. Right. Well. <laughs> so you're just scapegoating, you know, her, which is terrible. And you go, well, maybe this is an opportunity to to do more of like a family style intervention. So, you know, let's, let's get her in here. Let's talk about this. Let's actually see how the, the process unfolds. And if we can get you both on the same page, then there's accountability partners already built into the to the system and you know people feel better when they have someone to talk about about their progress um and just to support each other along the way so i think those those are a couple of factors that can be really important um from a motivational standpoint i mean it 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 just depends what's what's kind of moving somebody at at that particular moment and if, if you can If you can figure out what makes somebody tick and then use that in a way that can help them harness that energy to also make better, healthier lifestyle choices,
0: um, then you also stand a, a greater chance of success. Do you think timing plays a role in it? Like you just have to be the person in front of that other person at this exact moment giving them whether it's information or encouragement or maybe some concerning results where it's just it's the thing that at that moment they needed and you just happened to give it to them at that time. For sure. I mean,
1: I'm sure you've had the experience of like you, you read the same book twice, you watch the same movie for the second or third time, and it has a completely different message for you. Um, so, yeah, th- there's there's absolutely an element of that. Somebody's got to be in the right frame of mind, uh, receptive. Um, which is why, you know, a- although you feel like you're just the broken record a lot of the time, There really is a good reason to repeat the message over and over and over again, because I don't know if if it was heard the first or second or 10th time, but maybe after that, it it really sinks in and they go, you know what, you you keep hearing you say this, (laughs) um, but now it makes sense.
0: Right. So for sure, you know, timing is is absolutely key yeah you see this with people who successfully quit smoking it's very rarely the first time sometimes it's the hundredth time sometimes it's the 150th attempt and it's just well what's different about this one than the first 149 yeah it's you know it's their state of mind and what drove them to think about it that day and their potentially the difference in environment this time versus all those times before it's a pretty complex nut to crack and, and you know what gets people to quit smoking is health scares um,
1: so people who, who come in they've had their heart attack you know the the quit rate is significantly higher post heart attack you know it's unfortunate that it got to that point yeah. um, but it's illustrative of, of you know how much uh, how much of a shock to the system you often require in order to to disrupt that addiction loop um, you know, kids get people to stop smoking as well. You know, often you know people will smoke for years, and then they have their kid or, or they have a grandchild is born, and you know they're they're kind of given the, the lecture of well, if you want to see your grandchild, you're going to need to stop smoking because I don't want them to you know smell it on you or or be around it. Okay, well that, there you go, uh, enough is enough. So it's it's amazing how often you hear that that sort of story as opposed to just the the simple willpower
0: scenario. Just on a personal note, mm-hmm. do you think that's a good strategy? Because my uh my mother, she's gonna hate me for saying this if she ever <laughs> hears this, but she has smoked her entire life. Yeah. She's embarrassed of it. She right. hates it. Clearly she does not want to smoke. And mm-hmm. sometimes I sprinkle those things in of, you know Yeah. I I've seen you smoke your whole life. So me now as an adult, sure, I feel a certain way about it. But the whole thing is unsurprising to me at this point. It's going to be what it's going to be. I'd rather you not smoke. But clearly, it's not something that's just I'm going to snap my fingers and you're going to stop. Yeah. But now that she has three grandkids, I leverage that a little bit of you're important to them you're more important to them than you are to me and you're my own mother, but like you're a central <laughs> part of their life, right? right? Not meaning that, yeah. <laughs> you no, know, to, no, I get it. Yeah. But like <laughs> my mother has done what she's going to do for me. Right Now it's a completely different revamped relationship between her and my kids. And my parents are, are a very important part of my child's yeah. life. So I have brought it up, but then I sit back and think, it's not like she doesn't want to quit. So, am I being helpful <laughs> by bringing these things up, or am I just being hurtful right. by putting that out in front of her? Yeah, yeah, it's a fine line, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, so,
1: some of that could be, you know, finding that motivation that I was referring to, and you know, grandkids are a wonderful source of of motivation for for grandparents. Um, but I mean, the question is it's not of whether or not she knows that it's bad right she clearly knows that and she wishes that it it wasn't the case but she's you know physiologically dependent on this substance so it's it's more a question of so what is the barrier to stopping and are there are there different ways that you could go about Uh, behavioral change in that instance like can you create enough friction in the system that it just stops being a thing Uh, so for you know most law-abiding people they're not going to go to the black market and purchase cigarettes Um, so if you create a scenario where well you know if you just remove everything from the environment and then make it really challenging to acquire new sources, um, then that can be potentially enough of uh, a friction to create behavior change. Who knows? I mean, certain things like that I think people people need to try. Um, and then of course with smoking specifically, I mean there's there's nicotine replacement and people have usually tried you know every different variety of that and often it doesn't necessarily take the edge off um but there's there's usually different ways that you can troubleshoot it i think coming from a family member it's a lower <laughs> chance of success and uh there's a higher degree of likelihood that in uh, people are are seen as you know they're embarrassed or or it's or it's a shame type scenario right so there's a, this, this difference between Uh, guilt and shame (laughs) so shame is when i i feel like a bad person uh whereas guilt is i feel bad about what i did and that subtle distinction can be important so guilt can actually be a a a reasonable motivator for behavior change whereas shame is just not good (laughs) it just makes people feel worse uh you know worthless as a human being and go ah okay well what's the point anyway and that doesn't lead to to positive change
0: Yeah, I don't want to take us too far off the path here, but is there no scenario in which shame is helpful? Because there's got to be a fundamental reason why people are able to feel shame. And if you do something that is shameful, is the feeling of shame not warranted to some degree, especially if it leads you to never want to feel that thing again, thus never do that thing again? Right?
1: Yeah, I mean, depression seems to be natural, too, is that helpful I, I don't know <laughs> um, yeah I, sure but again it takes that insight right. right so it you know do I is what I'm feeling shame and then do I recognize it as such and then do I recognize that you know what this is horrible I never want to feel this again and so I'm going to change my ways forevermore to a- avoid that that's a lot of steps and takes a lot of Uh, emotional intelligence and psychological maturity to be able to make those changes sure I think the more likely scenario is people just dwell in it and you know bathe in the the dark light of (laughs) right so practically it's it's unhelpful I don't think it's great yeah (laughs) right
0: do you is it fair to say that you see a lot of different addictions in like an end stage of an addiction in the in the work that you do
1: Absolutely, yeah. And in the inpatient setting in the hospital... So London has uh, one of Canada's uh, most uh, prevalent populations of intravenous drug abuse. Uh, so we we get the complications from that group, mainly infectious-related stuff.
0: But uh, it's it's nasty. And what about cigarettes, alcohol, all these sorts of things more? Uh, in- oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you see it all. Yeah. So I've... Mm-hmm. Uh, i i wouldn't say this is like an ongoing feud i have with anybody but i've always been of the mind that food addiction is the same as any other addiction and while clearly the acute harm of food is not comparable to the acute harms of some of these other things which i always be very clear on that distinction the pathway seems to be the same of what drives someone into it what keeps someone in there and of course someone who has uh, a history of abuse and things like that is probably going to be driven into a more serious addiction. Right. But I've always h- hypothesized that for the average person, food is their addiction and food is their self-medication for what you might consider the more minor adverse experiences that someone has in life because it's socially acceptable, it's readily available. Of course, the immediate consequence of food is not what you would find in drugs and alcohol. But do you see those things as essentially the same when you think about the process that puts someone there and keeps someone there and makes it so difficult for someone to overcome. I,
1: I do, and that, that's exactly why, you know, I, I mention all of the, the psychological aspects and behavioral aspects of managing it and the fact that you, you need a support system and, and so on. Um, you know, if, if you look at the the criteria for a diagnosis of addiction, then uh, you, know, food has all of the components of that. Um, so, there has to be a physiologic dependence, meaning that you'll withdraw from it if you remove it from your diet. And, you know, absolutely that's the case, in particular with uh, sugar and, and carbohydrates. Um, it also has to affect your, your daily life and your ability to function in life. And, you know, we definitely see people going out of their way to acquire the food sources that they want. Uh, And, you know, do behaviors that are surreptitious, like they they hide things because they're ashamed of it, Um, which is unhelpful, which is absolutely (laughs) unhelpful. But the the problem is that food is socially acceptable. So you can go to a restaurant and eat terrible food and it's completely socially acceptable, you know, and then you have a few drinks with that. And if not encouraged, it's. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, food, food culture is uh, is huge. There's a network, uh, you know, <laughs> totally dedicated to it. Um, food is amazing, by the way, but just, you know, when when done well. Um, so that that's just that's part of the issue. Right. And, and similar similar to how we see smoking now is socially unacceptable. I think when, when our children see somebody smoking, they're like, well, that's really weird. I don't know if my kids have even seen someone smoke. Yeah, yeah. I had uh, I, I took my kids to uh, to Indigo a few weeks ago, and there there was a guy standing behind the the Indigo where we we parked smoking, and the kids get out of the car, and my daughter goes, "Ew, <laughs> he's smoking." I was like, "Josh, just, just keep it down, keep it down." Um, but yeah, I mean, it, so clearly they've they've gotten the message, and I don't think that we've harped on it by by any means but we certainly if if we see it in a in a tv show or something like that we'll go yeah i mean that person is smoking and that's really bad for you and
0: you you should never do it um and if you see someone do it you should yell that they're gross (laughs) at the (laughs) the top of your lungs that's right
1: and embarrass your father and uh possibly get him into a conflict he is not interested in yeah um but when like when i was a child we had smoking sections in restaurants, which is hilarious. Smoke because, in the car with your kids. You know, it was smoke open air. on the airplanes. I, yeah, my my dad smoked in the car with me. We we're going back and forth to school. Um, yeah, so it, it was completely normalized, right? But we've seen over you know a 20 to 30-year span that now it's not. And so I think that's probably where we're hopefully heading with ultra-processed foods. Yeah. Um, You know, I I really hope that it gets there. And I think industry certainly has a big role to play in looking at their preparation practices and improving that in uh, a better way so that they can distribute better
0: quality food to the masses. Yeah, it seems like that's going to have to be a consumer demand issue, because from what I see from food companies is they're just trying to take their garbage food and repackage it as healthy with some sort of loophole, you know. If my cereal contains this much X, Y or Z, I can put it on the box as a health statement, regardless of whatever else is in there. True. And then, you know, this is something that we could do multiple full episodes on. But then even at the governmental level, you have this, you know, subsidized system where the food that we subsidize and encourage farmers to grow is food that ends up in high fructose corn syrup and all of our processed foods to the point where we subsidize so much corn that now it's just a surplus that has to go places thus like we're almost creating the demand for making more processed food and the incentives are all yeah backwards and and pillaging the soil of
1: of good nutrient content and right and leading to you know devastating erosion events and and flooding like we're seeing so i mean it's it, it it all has significant downstream effects for all of us. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's it's a it's a tough hill to climb. Um, but I think you're right that it's it it's the consumer demand, you know, it's, it's similar to to climate change. It's it takes enough people at the uh, individual level to speak up and go, you know, we need to deal with this as an individual. I don't have the resources to move the needle on this. I can help one person at a time in front of me, you know, maybe a few more people in an audience in in a forum like this. Um, But it's really it's the policy level. It's the people who have the greatest resources that really have to have the most influence on creating a a healthier environment overall. So that's enough
0: on sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Was that? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) What is pillar number two? So sleep being is (laughs) it's that sleep is the most important Uh, intervention or do you think it's the easiest intervention a combination of the two why is why is sleep number one before we move on to number two
1: yeah sleep is number one uh because it's the first one that will affect you so the i look at the i call the three mandatory actions of living are sleep eat and move in that order because if we take them away sleep deprivation will get you before food deprivation does and that will both of those will get you before sedentary uh lifestyle gets you You can go for years and years and years of being sedentary um without dying right. but you can you can only literally go i think in one experiment the the longest somebody was sleep deprived ever was like 11 days or something and you know they were basically psychotic by by the end of that
0: yeah you can you can physically
1: <clears throat> perish from not sleeping yeah that's that's right yeah and and far sooner like you you can do a 14 day water only fast people have done this many many times and they don't you don't die so it's it's you know sleep is is just that crucially important for your function so that's why i I prioritize it uh plus people
0: don't often think about it enough so if you can boil it down to one action Mm -hmm. what is the the easiest most impactful singular thing someone can do Mm -hmm. to improve in the area of sleep
1: yeah, so s- consistently go to bed at the same time every night, wake up at a similar time
0: every morning and get between 7 to 9 hours. Okay. I will pretend that that's one thing. I think you got away with mixing three in there. No, I think it's going to bed at the one. same yeah. time, waking <laughs> at the same yeah. time. So, <laughs> pillar number 2. Pillar number
1: 2, eat. Yeah. So, it, I mean we've actually we've sprinkled in a lot of <laughs> Of course. Uh, n- nutrition. Uh, we don't need to be stuff, redundant yeah. if you've already covered it. Yeah. Yeah, um so eating uh, the the easiest place to start with people is by removing things. I think if, if you start to come at people with uh, a specific dietary pattern, it becomes overwhelming. Uh, you know, People's habits are what they are when it comes to food preparation and, and planning. Um, and those, those are hard fought battles to change that overnight. But if you can look at just the quality of what's going in initially and remove the things that are not adding good nutritional value, um, then that's a really successful place to start. An an excellent example of this, I've had probably four or five times in my practice in the past year alone uh, where just by removing pop and soft drinks from somebody's consumption, they literally lost like 10 kilos of weight and would go from diabetic range sugars to non-diabetic. So it just underscores the incredible impact of these, you know, terribly non-nutritious things that we put into our bodies. So those are the easy wins. Um, I mean, the addiction component of, and behavioral component aside, but if you can get rid of that, if you can get rid of most of the ultra processed stuff, the really simple high glycemic index carbohydrates, if you can pull that out, then you can make a lot of headway very quickly. Uh, so that's great. And then once somebody's done that and, and established that they can do that in a sustainable fashion, now you can start to talk a little bit more about the overall dietary prescription and how you think about meal planning and cooking in good, wholesome ways. Uh, Getting enough vegetable uh, content in there to increase your micronutrients
0: um, and so on. So I don't know where you want to take that. Well, what are if you can say, you know, three to five things where these are probably the things showing up in your diet that are the biggest problem, (laughs) where if you can remove any amount of these things, it's going to have the most dramatic impact on your health already labeling. processed sugar. Sure. Yeah. Well, one. the top 3 are sugar, sugar and sugar. <laughs> <laughs> so, which you may be upset to hear. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so And what is the what does sugar mean, right? Because people don't yeah, yeah. really know what you're referring to when you say sugar. They're like, "Oh, so I can't mm-hmm. have fruit? Can I not eat carrots anymore?" Right.
1: Yeah. Well, don't put sugar on your carrots. <laughs> so, the the sugar that we're referring to mainly is either the industry added Sugar, so the high fructose corn syrup, uh, or table sugar that's added to things. So, in a lot of baked goods, you know, your recipe will call for a cup or a cup and a half of of sugar. So, you know, which is insane crazy (laughs) amounts. I'm always shocked when I see that, and you can always reduce it. I don't know why they they call for as much as they do. Anyway, so those things, but then uh, let's talk about fruit after um starches and high glycemic index carbohydrates like white bread white rice um, starches like potatoes Uh, so these are quickly metabolized into sugar glucose and fructose in your body so once you digest them they hit the liver they are metabolized into glucose Uh, So that the fact that that happens so quickly means that your liver is seeing a much greater concentration of it than it would like to see, uh, which is very different than if you eat uh, like whole grain products or lower glycemic index carbohydrates because you've got fiber that's going in with that. So the digestive process is slower, you're not absorbing as high a concentration of sugar Uh, which is going to be appreciated by your liver down the line when it comes to fruit um, there's this interesting thing happening lately where people are going i should never eat fruit because fruit has sugar this is not true Uh, if you're keto then Fruit is probably going to tip you over that, you know, whatever, 20 or 30 grams of carbohydrate that you're allowed. Let's be honest. (laughs) Yes. So keto is really, really challenging to get yourself into nutritional ketosis, and it's not easily sustainable. Um, Fruit has so many uh, valuable components on the micronutrient side, vitamins, uh, minerals, etc., that are really good for us. That's great. Um, so when it comes to the sugar content, eating whole fruit is the way to go because then again, you've got the fibrous components of it. You've got the other, uh, uh the other, uh, makeup of, 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 the food itself. That's going to be metabolized better. If you drink fruit juice, that's basically just a sugar load straight to the liver. Right. So we should not be doing that. Um, but definitely eating whole fruit is, is fine. I don't mean like sitting down and eating an entire bowl of grapes, but you want to add in, you know, apples and oranges and, you know, even a banana is fine. <laughs> it's, again, one of these things that's been strangely vilified. Um, so, so that's fine. <clears throat> but when you balance that with vegetables, you probably want to have, like, at least two to one vegetables to fruit if you were to, to balance it out.
0: Uh, this is a question that I was actually going to bring up. Or no, I wasn't going to bring up a question that was in my mind when Mm -hmm. you were doing the seminar here the other day Dangerous that I would have liked to ask under uh, different circumstances. So I'll ask it right now because you brought up uh, number one vegetables, which would be obvious. And then nuts and Mm -hmm. seeds being part of the staple of what you would see as healthy whole foods that people should include in their diets. Right. But i think we're learning a lot more now about how intolerant many many people can be to certain vegetables certain classifications of vegetables and things like nuts and seeds which a lot of people i i find uh two different problems number one nuts seeds nut butters Super easy to overeat for yep. people. Uh, not that if you know someone's 70 pounds overweight, it's because they ate too many almonds. Right. <laughs> but really easy to overeat. And then I find a lot of people physically suffer when they eat too many nuts and seeds, just almost like having an inflammatory reaction to those foods. So not th- this is clearly a very individual issue that might be difficult to address. But do you have any thoughts on things like vegetables of certain kinds and nuts and seeds being potentially problematic for somebody. Um, honestly,
1: not really. I think we we all have to be aware of how our food makes us feel. The best way to find that out is to eat whole foods and you know, not a whole pile of different things all at once. So if you can only if you only eat you know two or three things at a time, then you're going to be able to figure out a lot more easily which one of those components is potentially giving you the grief. You know, so if it's if it's the cheese, you should hopefully be able to find that out. Uh, whereas if you're eating a prepared meal with a cheese sauce on your pasta and you know some a couple of vegetables sprinkled in. You know, it, it's harder to know because there's a lot of additional ingredients in there. Um, but, uh, yeah, people have allergies to nuts. You know, we know that we, there's policies around it, whether or not you can take peanuts to school. Any uh, nut. Any, any, which is we, we, are ridiculous. we are a nut-free <laughs> environment. Yeah, yeah, yes, we have lamented this, this fact because <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um so there's that. And People commonly have dairy intolerances. People commonly have uh, gluten, wheat intolerance. Potentially, other grains may cause them a problem. But I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say there's like one specific thing uh, that I would commonly caution people against. Um, certainly, it, IBS is is a is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> so irritable bowel syndrome, um, which has basically a list of criteria. That means that we have no other reason that we can find why somebody has GI upset, uh, constipation or diarrhea consistently over time. Um, but there certainly seem to be specific foods that aggravate that. Uh, and there's a particular type of uh, diet called the low FODMAP diet, which is you know, low in oligosaccharides, disaccharides. Uh, etc I was wondering if you were gonna try and do that entire gauntlet right now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but those you know those things are kind of like insoluble uh, fibers and sugars that sit in your gut seem to be aggravating for people who have IBS so you know it's it's important to know that and those are common things that that can be avoided in that particular scenario Um, but people just you kind of have to self-identify what those things are and not big enough and common enough where you're no. going to spend your energy there no no you know like tom brady says you shouldn't eat tomatoes <laughs> well i don't think I that's mean, true he says yeah. a lot of stuff <laughs> i don't, he, I don't he, think that's true
0: he's been hanging around <laughs> questionable people <laughs> let's <laughs> be honest <laughs> okay so sugar what else? If people can remove sugar. That'll be number one. If they can remove it three times, <laughs> it's even, even better. Even better. Yeah, and especially, uh, especially in beverage form. I
1: mean, there's there's just no no reason uh, to to drink any form of sugar. Yeah. Uh, so and and then again, like I like I was mentioning, the high high glycemic index carbohydrates. If we can eliminate that as as best as possible. Um, So my my favorite mantra that I use for patients when it comes to the carbohydrate thing is vegetables are carbs. So when you design your plate, you don't have to have the brown or tan colored portion that, you know, the quarter that they show in the in the food guide. You know, that can also be vegetables and that's perfectly fine. You will get adequate uh, carbohydrate intake that way so if we can eliminate that that's great we just i think it's cultural we have this idea that you know meat and cheese has to be wrapped in bread right. um you can't have you know vegetables without being on a bed of rice <laughs> so it's just you know some of it is is just this you know odd cultural phenomenon that i think you can easily move past uh by <laughs> getting getting used to new, new standards um Uh, those are honestly probably the quick wins Um, when it comes to to fats definitely trying to move towards more healthy fats rather than an overabundance of uh, animal-based saturated fats is probably a good idea so uh, certainly trans fats are to be eliminated but it's actually harder to find trans fats now because there was actually regulation to say that it needed to be removed from the food supply so that's that's good um but when i say healthy fats i'm i'm talking about mono and polyunsaturated fats uh, which would come in the form of things like uh, extra virgin olive oil for example so if you can get more of that if you can get more um fish in your diet with Um, the fish oils or the omega-3 fatty acids that come uh, in fish content then that's excellent as well Uh, nuts and seeds are a great healthy source of of fat
0: do you have any concern there with uh, the amount of omega-6 in a person's diet as well as do you have you know polyunsaturated fatty acids is a pretty general category Do you feel the same way when it comes to like hydrogenated vegetable oils, Um, things like, you know, safflower oil, cottonseed oil, all these other things that are being sold as heart healthy, but there's some controversy there, at least uh, connecting, you know, however loosely associating those sorts of hydrogenated vegetable oils that would be considered a polyunsaturated fatty acid to inflammatory diseases and and things of that nature
1: you asked like three questions at the same time pick any one of them we'll (laughs) see where it takes us um the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is important for sure so uh, omega-6 is more likely and well it will be the the precursor to arachidonic acid uh which in our body is one of the um basically the the beginning of the cascade uh of inflammation so having a, a preferable omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is important. Um, do any of us have any idea of what that looks like? Generally not. Um, but you can be assured that there's a higher omega-6 content in fried foods, uh, deep fried foods. Uh, so those are things that definitely we should try to... Eliminate from our diet. So you know, baking things as an alternative would be uh, would be preferable, and then choosing cooking oils that uh, have a more preferable omega six to omega three ratio. Probably the best um, one on the grocery store shelves that's easily attainable is is canola oil. Will have uh, kind of the best ratio. Um, the, the issue that comes up in cooking is it's the smoke point of oils, right? So when you, you, using olive oil has a low smoke point. So it's, it's hard to saute things and, uh, and fry things in olive oil because it burns and then it has this really gross, bitter flavor. Um, so you would just want to choose a cooking oil with a higher smoke point, which is, which is better. Avocado oil actually is, is reasonable for that.
0: Coconut oil too. Although would you consider... A plant saturated fat in the same category as a animal saturated fat? Uh, honestly, I, I don't know. I,
1: I think I would still prefer the plant source, probably. Um, but I, I just don't think there's great data to to parse that difference very well at all. You know, coconut oil clearly is is far more saturated. It's it's turns to solid at at room temperature, <laughs> so it's it's definitely a, a more more saturated oil.
0: So that was the omega six to omega three part yep. was the second half of your question. Do you have concerns about the stability of polyunsaturated fatty acids, uh, specifically like hydrogenated forms of polyunsaturated fatty acids that are sold yeah. as heart health, like okay. corn oil, things like that, which are, yeah. th- are a little controversial. As I far think as... I
1: think the reason that those can be billed as heart healthy is because of the polyphenol content so polyphenols are a constituent of of plant sources that uh, have been shown to be um, to improve cardiovascular health uh, and improve even your lipid profile in your blood work um, the problem is that we don't you don't just eat those in isolation it has to come with with something else um so i i think the the adverse uh, properties of hydrogenated vegetable oils uh, outweigh the potential benefits of like the polyphenol contents I would I
0: would try to avoid those things okay so then anything else you can think of in general with diet cut out sugar starches are fine but should be hap- uh, perhaps be moderated yeah. fruit is fine maybe with some moderation but if you're in a poor state of health, it's probably not fruit. That's going to be the thing. And then as far as fats, you know, you just listed off what you yeah. think is is preferable.
1: Honestly, I think the most important thing is preparation. I think just just planning ahead and knowing what your menu is, shopping ahead of time and just having especially snacks on hand that are good snacks is really important. Um, so, in, in our households, we create our menu for the week on the weekend and, you know, my wife and I, we look at each other and kind of roll our eyes and we're like, oh, geez, now we got going to come up with a whole week of meals again. <laughs> and it's like this chore, but then we really, really appreciate it when the busy week with kids and everything rolls around and we know exactly what we're having for dinner every single night so we can have, you know, stuff taken out of the freezer the night before we can have the some of the prep done and then you only have to go to the grocery store once
0: running a so, tight ship over there you bet you bet you have to man yeah i like to go to yeah. the grocery store often do you yeah and yeah. i don't i don't really know why it's probably just because i eat so much <laughs> and I, can, I can only store so Are much. Are you just food embarrassed about how much would be in your cart? <laughs> uh, maybe, that, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's it. Maybe I'm afraid I'll run into somebody <laughs> exactly. th- uh, at the wrong time. Yeah. So uh, before we move into exercise, can you say anything about the state of nutrition science and nutrition research? Because you brought up a point saying, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily about this thing in isolation. It's it's also what you eat. This typically in combination with, and I find from my yeah. perspective. This is the worst thing about anybody who makes claims about nutrition that's backed by papers, research studies, is that the state of nutrition research is so awful (laughs) that I don't know how anyone can make a conclusion. This is getting back to why, for me, it was important to have an an underlying evolutionary philosophy when I talk about nutrition because it's easy to go find A certain amount of evidence to support your point of view in nutrition oh sure but it's all like it's 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 the worst field for as far as quality collection and people don't know that when they just hear someone say you should do this and this is why and there's this research that says doing this is going to increase your chance of this disease by x and reduce it by this y people don't know what the actual underlying Research and study is that that holds up those claims. So, in, in your experience, how do you summarize the state of nutrition research that leads to a lot of these conclusions that that you make or hear? Yeah, I'd give it a solid D
1: minus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's not it's not great. So you kind of you have two ends of the spectrum. You've got these big epidemiologic studies where stuff is mainly based on food frequency questionnaires. And I mean, I, I couldn't tell you what I had to eat two days ago. And so when they're surveying large groups of people asking them for how often do you eat meat or vegetables or uh, or you know, any particular content, whatever is on those surveys, the recall is is terrible. So you end up with the garbage in, garbage out phenomenon. And I I don't know how you draw any conclusions from from any of this stuff.
0: Yeah, not just that, but something that I don't think anybody talks about in this field is that And this goes back to the shame element you talked about is people who are in the absolute worst shape, even when answering a food frequency questionnaire, are going to feel such shame with the things they actually consume that they're going to lie and try and tick the boxes that they think (laughs) are healthy because it will make them feel better about submitting the questionnaire,
1: Even, even though they're alone in a room while they're doing it. Yeah. Um, sure. I mean, and it's similar. There's something called the Hawthorne effect, which is you know, the when you're being observed, you your behavior changes. And yeah. so if, if you know that you're being observed, then it's not going to actually be an act uh, an accurate depiction of, of what you would normally do. Right. Um, so there's that. And then there's the, the other extreme is the is the biochemical research so basic science stuff. It's there's a lot of in vitro experiments uh, uh in you know in dishes with cells uh, there's a lot of animal studies uh with mice and rats uh which i mean doesn't even close to to translate in into humans and so hanging your hat on a mouse study there's just there there's no solid ground to stand on there when we're trying to make conclusions probably the, be- the best nutrition study that's that's actually been done was the pretty Med study looking at the mediterranean diet um you know which which was a positive study and that's that one of the reasons why this is like when you talk about a heart healthy diet so to speak you know we we say well the mediterranean diet is probably the one with the best evidence because it's you know Probably the one
0: with the only evidence. So yeah, uh, but even that, yeah. how do you separate the Mediterranean lifestyle from the Mediterranean diet, which exactly. is clearly yeah way different? Which is where those studies were <laughs> done, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And then
1: you've got the whole blue zone thing with these, you know, populations like the Sardinians that live for four thousand years for some reason, and they <laughs> so that be might eating be an eating pasta, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, or yeah. the
0: French paradox things like this right. where wine yeah. and bread and there, cheese I mean, somehow helps just, your heart there but just destroys just it here. stubborn to die but uh <laughs> yeah it's
1: uh yeah it's it's impossible to um, to navigate these things with uh with a lot of precision which again is why you need to work with people one-on-one and and figure out you know what exactly is is going in every day and uh and what are you doing and how can we just start to move it in a better direction.
0: So what is the approach then for your point of view and information? Because you're in medicine, which is essentially a scientific field. If the science which underlies a key part of of what you do and the people you see is at best on shaky ground, how do you approach nutrition that leads to the advice that you give? Uh, Well, I I still underscore its its
1: importance. Um, I think you you can definitely conclude that those who eat what looks like a better quality diet have better outcomes um, they feel better uh, they their parameters their numbers that we look at all improve when they make those changes so experientially we I, we can say you know we've we, we do have a lot of lived uh, evidence that suggests that this is a good thing to do um, and then i just come at it like you know we've got We've got time to do this, uh, you know. I I'm trying to prevent the bad things that can happen to you in ten and twenty years, so we've got time to, to make changes and we can start tinkering with this and doing one thing at a time and you know not seeing stuff as as setbacks and just try to have an open conversation about it. That's two-sided and and I'm very open about the fact you we don't know everything and and I can't tell you specifically maybe what the you know best one two three things is for an entire population of people but I'm very confident that
0: we can make positive change at the individual level that will do it for part two in our four-part introductory series join us on the next episode out now where we get into the exercise pillar Thank you for joining us. The content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice and is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I mean, clearly not when I'm speaking. I'm not a doctor. But that goes for the real doctor, Dr. Appleton, as well. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health. You should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted. Huh? Transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in this podcast.